Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. This episode is Wheezy Child, Episode 1, Bronchiolitis. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Now is the winter of our discontent, long gone the glorious summer of Nottingham, and all the patients lured upon our paediatric team in their chests feel the tightness of breath. Now our department is bound with wheezing children. Forsooth, dear listener, for it is I, Jamie, one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine, and I'm here with a couple of my colleagues from the paediatric team. So hi, I'm Dr Phil, and my Twitter handle is at the ED consultant. Hi, I'm... Colin, I'm one of the Paediatric Emergency Medicine Registrars, um, and I don't have a Twitter handle. Disappointing. Very disappointing. So, um, Phil and Colin, to paraphrase the House of Stark, uh, winter is coming, uh, we're recording in October, and that means that wheezy children are coming. Oh, very much so, isn't it? In fact, I think they've been coming all summer, to be fair, haven't they? Absolutely, I don't think there's been uh, much respite from it, but I'm sure we'll see increasing numbers over the next uh, few months as we get into the real cold weather. So, um, because the wheezing child is such a big topic, we've decided to break this down into a uh, trilogy. Um, all good trilogies come in three parts. This is the first part, and uh, we will be looking at uh, bronchiolitis in uh, this podcast. So I suppose the, the first place to begin, guys, is... Um, what exactly is bronchiolitis and uh, who gets it and why? So essentially uh, bronchiolitis is a viral induced illness of the upper respiratory tract uh, essentially caused by the RSV or respiratory syncytial virus um, tends to occur in children under one um, and what the pathophysiology is that these uh, children get the virus and then uh, they get uh, mucus production within their bronchioles and their bronchi and this causes necrosis of the cells and sloughing and so they get mucus plugging and that's why they get their symptoms. So it's generally children under one year, uh, generally it's between the ages of anywhere from just after birth to eight, nine months. Colin, as, as you're coming in to, to clerk in the patient, what sort of features would you be looking for to um, point towards a bronchiolitis uh, diagnosis? Sure, so I think uh, uh, the first thing that you normally notice uh, with these children is that parents will tell you that they might have noticed that it appears to be working harder with this breathing. The kind of things we'd look for there is indrawing of the chest, an increased respiratory rate, so breathing much faster than normal, and the most energetic thing children of this age do is to feed. Uh, so the first thing that goes when you've got increased work of breathing is feeding. Uh, so parents will often give a good history of, of feeding getting progressively more difficult uh, and not tolerating the volumes that they had been before. Okay. And I suppose, um, what are the sort of key questions you, you need to be asking then for any child then with wheeze? And, you know, either yourself or if a junior was coming to speak to you, what were the, the key questions you'd hope that were asked? So I'd, I'd be very hopeful to know what their respiratory rate was. Uh, I'd want to know how much increased work of breathing they had. So if they've got subcostal recession, intercostal recession, sternal recession, have they got a tracheal tug? I'd want to know how much they've been feeding um, and putting that all together, um, how they think the baby looks. So do they think the baby looks well and happy or do they think the baby looks unwell uh, and is struggling? 
Okay. I think in regards with the feeding side of things, we tend to use the magic number of 50. So 50%, so if you've reduced your intake by half, or the wetting of the nappies by half, that's uh, the indication that I always ask for when I'm taking my histories. Well, I think just before we go into the examination, there's just a special sort of subsection or sort of cohort of kids. Uh, they're the ones that are six weeks and under, and often they can present just with apneas. So just bear that in mind, they can have no other symptoms whatsoever, they just occasionally intermittently stop breathing. So with apnea just being the, the only presenting complaint? Indeed. Okay. Uh, so for those uh, patients over six weeks uh, presenting as query bronchitis, what will you guys find on examination when you come to examine the patient? So pretty much it's just what Colin said, is that you find uh, a child that's working hard, uh, and often with the children that are working really hard, the nurses often come and get you straight away. Um, so you're looking for, as Colin says, intercostal recession, subcostal recession, tracheal, tug. Okay, if they're working really hard, they might be grunting. Um, and that's often a sign that the child is quite sick. Um, saturations can often be low. And so they'll uh, have saturations in the sort of low 90s if they're getting poorly. Um, the other thing is when you auscultate you, you'll, you'll basically hear lots of fine crackles so the best of the way you could describe it to those that have never heard it before are as if you've got a, a crisp packet and you're rustling the crisp packet so it's more crackling than wheezing yeah you've taken your history you're, you've examined your patient uh, you're happy that it's uh, sort of bronchiolitis is there any other investigations you'd, you'd want to do at that stage so in terms of the ED, um, we don't advocate any investigations. Okay, if you're confident that the history is bronchiolitis, then there's more likely to be bronchiolitis. There are no investigations that are going to help you in the emergency department. What the ward would tend to do is do a nasopharyngeal aspirate and check what kind of virus uh, is causing so they can cohort people appropriately on the wards, principally because um, RSV, uh, it's very contagious, mm -hmm. so if you put an RSV baby in the middle of non-RSV babies, they're all going to get RSV and then they're going to delay to discharge and then that's going to cause backlog within the emergency department because we can't admit our patients then. You, Would you agree Colin? Absolutely, I think that um, MPAs in terms of their clinical value are there to cohort patients. It perhaps doesn't help us that much in knowing what the course is. And the other thing to say is that about a third of these patients will have more than one virus uh, when you do an MPA. But the only other thing to say about investigations is that uh, you've got to make sure that it's definitely bronchiolitis. So there's one case when I was working on an intensive care unit, um, essentially turned out to be whooping cough. So the investigations there are to do a full blood count because you're looking for a a lymphocytosis essentially but with the immunization program as it is in the UK um, that's going to be a very rare presentation. Luckily so. Um, so you're happy it's bronchiolitis for your clinical examination what's uh, what's our management plan then in the, in the emergency department Colin? So I think it's uh, to know what the saturations are and to know how the feeding is and to know what the work of breathing is. Uh, if you are happy that the oxygen levels, uh, depending on what your department says, uh, are above uh, the required level, so uh, some departments would use 92%, some would use 94%, um, and the child is feeding more than 50%, is having wet nappies, 
and the work of breathing isn't particularly significant, then it might well be reasonable to send them home with some clear advice uh, and safety netting for parents, letting them know about what signs would mean that their child is getting sicker. Oxygen levels below the designated level within guidelines uh, of 92 or 94%, feeding of less than 50% or significant work of breathing uh, would obviously be um, a reason for admission. And obviously if they were having apneas, uh, then that would be the time to speak to your intensive care colleagues to come and review the patient. I think the other important thing just to say about uh, when you're discharging these patients is to obviously give a clear safety net to the parents, but you also need to give them a timeline really. Uh, essentially because you know the parents will want to know when they can expect their child to get better and so standard rule of thumb is three to five days when you get peak illness and then after that it's uh, improvement slowly and most well 90% of children will have a cough uh, after their initial bronchiolytic episode and that can last up to three weeks and into some it can last up to six weeks. Uh, but RSV is normally a self-limiting illness, nothing, no treatment other than that is needed, is that right? Yeah, pretty much. So uh, a lot of the uh, treatment for bronchiolitis is supportive therapy. So with the feeding, often what the family will need to do is to increase their frequency of feeds but decrease the volume so that over the space of 24 hours they get a similar volume to what they're normally used to. Okay. And so um, I suppose because of the... Um you know, the, the actual pathology involved in uh, bronchiolitis, you know, can be tempting sometimes to try things like salbutamol or ipratropium. That's not going to be of any benefit in a patient bronchiolitis, is it? I mean, this is where Colin and I look at each other incredulously and say, you just said the S word, and that's uh, probably <laughs> uh, uh, not a good thing. Um, so salbutamol really will not work with these children. Uh, two main reasons. One, they don't have the receptors to be able to um, utilise the drug. Um, but secondly, if you think about what the pathophysiology is, it's not a reactive airways disease, it is sloughing of the lining of the bronchioles, and so you get a mucus plugging, so there is no bronchoconstriction to reverse. So all you're going to do is have a tachycardic baby, which is then going to throw in a diagnostic conundrum, because you want to know whether this baby then is septic or not. Absolutely, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think salbutamol really doesn't have any place. Uh, they've been... Uh, lots of reviews and studies to try and see if it works and there's no good evidence that it does and as Phil said it can only muddy the waters to a, to a certain extent. The only, so the only caveat to the S word is if you are tempted to give some hypertonic saline to help uh, expectorate the mucus plugging. Um, salbutamol's only role then is a form of bronchodilatation because the saline nebs can be irritant um, and there is weak evidence to suggest that giving the salbutamol alongside the saline nebs would help to prevent the bronchoconstriction caused by the saline nebs. The only thing I'd add to that is I think that uh, saline nebs are being used less and less now. So I know there was a, a Cochrane review that showed that salbutamol nebulizers may be effective in reducing hospital stay by approximately a day. But the most recent double-blinded randomised control trial that's uh, been released shows that there is no benefit to saline nebulizers, to hypertonic saline in bronchiolitis. It makes no difference to the patient's outcome, makes no difference to length of stay, and that is why one of the many reasons why it is not recommended in the NICE guidelines.
Uh, so I suppose it's good practice uh, not to uh, have anchoring bias, focus on one uh, diagnosis too early. It's always important to have some differentials, um, especially um, when you're more junior. So guys, what sort of differentials are there going through your mind when you see a patient with query bronchitis and, and how might it differentiate between them? Well, uh, anchoring bias, it's a very uh, posh word for you, Jamie. Um, so I think the, the most important one for me is to think about some congenital cardiac malformation because every year out of your hundreds of bronchiolytics you'll see there will be one that will be uh, congenital cardiac malformation. So I think that's quite important. I think things like pneumonia are also important. So if the child's got a high fever uh, along with uh, chest crackles, uh, then you should suspect that pneumonia could be uh, another differential. Yeah, and I think there's obviously the weird and wonderful as well out there in terms of um, childhood interstitial lung diseases, which are incredibly rare. And the key thing about these is that they are representing frequently very unwell um, with respiratory symptoms. So it would not be one episode. The other thing about them presenting in this kind of age group is that there's often a failure to thrive, as there would be with a cardiac diagnosis. So I think there are two things to look at. Um, this kind of six to eight week period is the time when your pulmonary vasculature is uh, falling down towards real adult levels. And so that's the time at which the left to right cardiac shunts will present your kind of VSDs. So if you've got a child at that age, it's important to listen for a murmur uh, and consider it as a diagnosis. Other things that potentially uh, haven't been diagnosed at birth, but most commonly are, would be things like um, a... Um, tracheoesophageal fistula. Again, very rare, most of these are picked up in the neonatal period now, um, but it's a possibility uh, and considerations of some much rarer things that usually cause upper respiratory, upper airway problems uh, in terms of strider would be things like uh, a tracheomalacia or a laryngomalacia, and even within that, very, very rare would be things like a vascular ring, um, but again, they would normally present with uh, more strider type symptoms. It's very clever, isn't it? Well, occasionally. Almost like he's a paediatric specialist. <laughs> so Colin, you mentioned um, fever in the presence of uh, pneumonia. Um, does that mean that patients with bronchiolitis will be apyrexial then? Uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, they often are, but uh, having a fever does not mean you haven't got bronchiolitis, and having bronchiolitis doesn't mean that you haven't got a fever. Certain organisms that can cause bronchiolitis often, the influenza can often cause quite a high fever, even above 39. It is important though, when you see a child with a significant fever, uh, to reconsider and consider the diagnosis. Um, so this is a bit where, you know, if you've seen 20 children, all of a similar age, three to six months, all with shortness of breath, all with bronchiolitis, um, to be able to spot the one that's slightly different. So if one comes in with a temperature, it's important to consider uh, the other diagnosis and not just use your system one brain, but turn your system two analytical brain on and have a real good thought about it. And just see, is there any signs of sepsis? Is there any signs more of pneumonia than bronchiolitis? I think, I need, to download, I think I need to download system two. <laughs> <laughs> and what would those features of pneumonia be, Colin? So you'd look for more focal chest signs. So bronchiolitis gives you a very... Generalised test signs throughout both lung fields. Pneumonia is normally uh, very focal test signs of reduced air entry um, over that area. Um, and that would be the thing that uh, I think would differentiate it most from, um, from bronchiolitis. That's obviously challenging in small children's babies and neonates, but it's, um, 
still worth reviewing? Is there a difference between one side to the other, or is it more generalised respiratory change? Yeah, and I suppose, if in doubt, like we always say, speak to a senior. Absolutely. Very much so. That was Take Orally, Wheezy Child Episode 1, Bronchiolitis. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we will put up links to guidelines mentioned, and you can contact us there to suggest topics you would like to see covered in future podcasts. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.